Welcome to The Lead, the New Lions Magazine podcast. I'm Faiz Aliafai, and this is the podcast where we delve into some of the biggest ideas, events, and personalities in the Middle East and beyond. In The Lead this week, we look at the recent outbreak of political violence in Baghdad. It was the latest escalation in an ongoing showdown between two of Iraq's most powerful political factions. One, a pro-Iranian Shia bloc known as the Coordination Framework. The other, the supporters of Muqtada Sadr. Sadr, a Shia religious leader and influential populist politician, has campaigned against corruption as well as foreign influence from both Iran and the United States. The rivalry between his movement and the pro-Iranian bloc has left the country's parliament paralyzed since last October's elections, unable to form a government or elect a new president. In June, Sadr urged MPs from his alliance to resign in what he called a sacrifice from me for the country and the people to rid them of an unknown destiny. The move essentially abdicated parliamentary power in favor of his rivals. Instead, he sought to break the political deadlock through protest, mobilizing his strong base of support. In July, pro-Sadrist demonstrators occupied the parliament, shutting down any attempt to form a new government. Sadr's demands escalated. He called for snap elections and the dismissal of parliament. At the end of August, Sadr announced that he was withdrawing from politics, prompting an even more intense wave of protests. His supporters took to the Green Zone, where they stormed the Republican palace. As night fell, the peace companies, a Sadr's paramilitary group, battled pro-Iranian militias in the streets. As the death toll rose to around 30, Sadr called for his supporters to withdraw from the area to stop the violence. Which brings us to where we are now. To discuss these issues, I'm joined today by my colleague Rasha Lakhidi, an Iraqi researcher and analyst and the Middle East deputy editor here at New Lines. Rasha, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Faisal. Thank you for having me. So before we get into the events of the past week, uh, I wondered if you could talk a bit more about the man at the center of it all, Muqtada Sadr. Uh, he's been a, a fixture of Iraqi politics for a long time. He was an important figure in the opposition to the American occupation. Uh, and of course, his father was even more influential before that under Saddam Hussein's regime. Yes, yes. So of course, Muqtada Sadr uh, is a, uh, a religious figure uh, and a leader. And um, he is... Uh, he has managed to sort of create kind of a, a cultish following that is rare and kind of unique in in Iraqi politics and even in Iraq society. We don't we don't see this uh, we don't see this with any other religious figure. Mm. He um, become coming from the Sadr family, which um, is a is a I believe a family of Lebanese origin that has been in Iraq for several centuries. Um, very influential, very well known. Um, his uncle was uh, an, uh, an Ayatollah Amarja, and his father was a, <clears throat> a, a very kind of a, a very a very feisty kind of a, a firebrand himself, a religious figure in Iraq, uh, who was executed by by the Ba'athist regime uh, back in the nineties. Uh, Sadr is different from the other Iraqi religious figures and leaders in that he's never been a fish, he's never He's never been like a, a politician in the official sense. So he's never for himself like campaigned to be a parliament member. He does not want to be prime minister. He has his own followers and he directs them on what to do and how to act and on which ways to enter the political process in Iraq. But he himself, he's not a politician in that sense, uh, which is which made him different than uh, Al-Hakim family. 
which is another religious family that is kind of parallel with the with the Sadras, with El Sadr in that in that sense. The other thing about Muqlada is that because he was born and raised in Baghdad and never left Iraq under the Ba'athist regime, he he stayed in the country. He he's not he did not come with the rest of the you know pre two thousand and three Saddam Hussein opposition. Yeah, there were all these the, all these Iraqis who had fled under the Saddam Hussein regime, and then after mm -hmm. the occupation, they came back and they went back into politics. He wasn't like that. Exactly, he's born and raised in Baghdad, and he he stayed in Iraq, so he finds himself kind of more legitimate. And in the early, we we saw that literally twenty four hours after the after the you know fall of the collapse of the Saddam Hussein regime, when uh, when there was that infamous confrontation. Um, in, in Najaf between Al-Khui and uh, alleged Sadrist. It's, it's never really been confirmed, but that eventually led to the, uh, to the killing of Abdul Majid Al-Khui, who was the son of the former, um, of the former Marja'iya, of the former Marja prior to Sistani, and who had just returned to Iraq um, from London. And for li literally on April 10th, 2003, this confrontation happened. And that was the first, you know, let's say, draw of blood that happened between the, the different um, Shias, uh, sec sectors in the country. He was never charged with anything and he maintained his role. But you can see from that day that it was more that I am more legitimate. Mm. I should be the one. I should be the one in charge. Nonetheless, he's never either really aspired to be a marja or a religious reference. Um, uh, if we can, if we can, uh, you know, I d define it that way. At least he has not. He does not have the credentials for it at this moment. He has gone back and forth to Iran to study for this purpose, but he's never officially made a statement that he aspires to be one, which kind of left him in a position where, you know, you're not a politician and you're not a marja either. You're not a religious reference. Yeah, I mean that's the interesting because of course his father was very religiously influential. Yes, and he sort of straddles this weird space where, mm -hmm. as you say, he doesn't aspire to be the prime minister of the country. But he's also not a religious figure, and yet he straddles these two. But he runs a militia. I mean, it's an odd position to be it, in. It, it is. It is, and you know, he, it's kind of on. On one hand, he he kind of manages manages both, um, but at the same time, it's given uh, it's it's given opportunity for his rivals to to consistently kind of you know sort of bring him down because he's he's neither. Uh, mm. But this is not to say that he you know is this immaculate immaculate figure. Absolutely not. He's the father of all militias in Iraq. You know, Jaish al-Mahdi, the Mahdi army, uh, it is the first, it was the first armed group in the country uh, that was created inside Iraq. Of course, there was Badr, of course, also, but that was <clears throat> in opposition to Saddam and the Ba'athists that was created back in the 80s, I believe, and it was created in Iran. But uh, the Sadr, Mahdi army, Mahdi army was created inside of Iraq on orders by Muqtada Sadr to sort of challenge anyone who rivals him. And it was from that group that uh, the other, you know, infamous militias like Asab al-Haq and whatnot, they all splintered from that group. So he has had, you know, he's, he has, he has had his impact on the sort of the descent of Iraqi politics, absolutely. Mm. Um, this is him himself when we say as a leader. Now, when we look at the Sadrist movement and those who, became parliament members and became ministers. Uh, they are amongst the most that are officially known to be extremely corrupt. Uh, 
we published at New Lines an article about the hospitals when they were consistently catching fire and killing so many people and patients. It was always a minister from the Sadrist movement um, that which this how would happen because the health services were extremely, extremely weak due to corruption. Uh, so it's not like he's this, uh, you know, nationalist patriot, although he tries to portray himself as this. And the That's other how thing, he portrays he, himself, right. Exactly. And also yeah. this other thing about him being anti-Iran, this is, um, yeah. there's no such thing as anti-Iran in all of Iraq's political system at the moment, even even among Sunnis and, and other groups. That doesn't exist. Now, there are groups that are, um, that don't answer to Iran 100%. And there are others who have just accepted the fact that Iran is not going to go anywhere and this country is very influential. Mm. And they just kind of managed to deal with it in a way. One thing that most um, Iraqi politicians, leaders have in common is that uh, they don't like how um, Iran does not ex- does not respect Iraqi, Iraq's, Iraq's um, you know, independence, sort of. They don't look at necessarily. They feel that Iran does not look at Iraq as a sovereign state, yeah. um, and this is this is the this is the as far as we can go when we can say anti-Iran. But as to be but, openly out there, you know, saying something against the Iran, asking it to leave, that can be like a popular demand. But at a, politi- a politics level, that doesn't exist. But we do see that Muqtada has uh, at least his fo- at least his his followers have in in recent in the recent year year or two, I believe, they've kind of amplified this narrative that their rivals, coordination framework, and even before the elections, popular mobilization forces, and um, the state of law run by Nurul Maliki, and they have portrayed them as being overtly pro-Iran and <clears throat> seeking Iranian interests over Iraq's interests. That's, that's how we can say, you know, that's where the Iran angle sort of comes in. Yeah, I mean, that seems to be the differentiating factor, like that's somewhere on a spectrum between accepting that there is some influence of the Iranians and pushing back against too yes. much influence by the Iranians. Yeah. And that's basically the distinction between the Sudris movement and this the opposition, which is sometimes called the pro-Iranian Shia bloc, the Coordination Framework Alliance. Yes, yes, yeah, absolutely. So then what do you think... Sadr was hoping to achieve with these latest moves. I mean, do you, we'll get to whether you think it went according to plan, but what do you think he, he intended by withdrawing from politics? So uh, he cannot, so Muqtada cannot go back to sort of forcing the Mahdi army to take to take charge through violence. <clears throat> That's something that he's he's given up on and also, you know, the influence of other religious figures such as Sistani, uh, who, who would absolutely oppose this. So what he what he can control, however, is his supporters. Now, when I say supporters, I don't mean those in parliament. I mean those on the streets. He can direct them to protest, and he believed that if he would if he withdrew from parliament, he could once once again sort of you know command the outcome of politics through the streets, through non political aims, not violence this this time around. So no Mahdi army, but through protesters, and that this would lead to. Um, this would lead to so much pressure that would demand perhaps re-election. This this might have been his his aim, or it would um, it would cause such a deadlock not just in politics but also in basic Iraqi life that um, his rivals would concede and say, "Okay, we will form this government as you wish," and he might in that case you know call on his um, call on his uh, on the Sadrist leaders in parliament to return to politics. Uh, but you know, it, needless to say that, that that has not worked out for him. That did not exactly happen. 
Um, yeah, it, it didn't go. It didn't go according to plan, but it didn't go completely against the plan. It. Uh, I think that uh, it, it kind of showed that he had been initially perhaps willing for the, you know, the the Shia Shia infighting. Um, that the, he wanted to show that he was willing to do so. I don't believe he anticipated that um, the other that the militias uh, would in fact, you know, also be willing to do this. Uh, this is where I think he there was a slight of a slight miscalculation. So that was the miscalculation that he thought he would send his figures into the green zone. They would continue this long running occupation, and then eventually there would be some political settlement. Yes, absolutely. Right. But instead, what happened? was that the pro-Iranian militias, the Coordination Framework Alliance, sent their own <laughs> armed militias into the streets, and you mm -hmm. had these clashes that left two dozen people dead. Yeah, I believe now it's around 30. And, uh, you know, it's last night uh, in Iraq time, there was huge confrontation in Basra uh, this time around. And I believe several civilians were also killed and injured. And it was between Sadrists and, and different, um, also different militias. Uh, and also in, Bas yeah. in Basra, another it's the tribal factor. Who the tribes in Iraq, in south, in southern Iraq, they they have like their dispersed loyalties. So some of them are southern, some of them are with the co coordination framework. But they have a lot of arms and a lot of weapons, and they also have problems amongst each other. So it's kind of this, just this massive pool of violence where people are just attacking others, um, and it did calm down a little bit in Basra. But we still see today. Um, that there have been um, there have been some really really fiery statements. Uh, one Mokhlada Sadr's, uh, if we can call him sort of spokesperson, who's huge on social media, he um, he attacked Qais al Khazali, the leader of Asab al Haq, the AAH, and he called him rude and uh, demanded that if he does not stop his militias, things will not turn well. And Qais in return, Qais al-Khazali responded, asking people to ignore him and not care. So we, we also we still see an escalation, at least a verbal escalation, that mm. could lead to something in, in the future. Uh, but for the time being, I, I feel that because nearly, actually more than 30 people have been killed so far, the majority of them Sadrists, um, Muqtada does not, does not want this bloodshed. And it could be a moment of realization where he sees that he cannot use this anymore uh, because he also understands that Iraqis in general are absolutely terrified of an escalation, and this could, you know, have a this could have a backlash against him and his and his movement and his position in the country if this continues. Um, escalation, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. But I was interested in that. It does seem as if he he miscalculated quite how much sway he had on individuals because as you say the violence has now moved from baghdad to basra and he's not able to control all of the different aspects of the movement perhaps in baghdad he can with a wave of his hand return people to the barracks he can pull the 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 armed militias off the streets but there are other armed militias elsewhere in the country yeah. who are maybe on the edges of his movement and he can't control them that, that, absolutely and you know you would think that he he would realize this from 2006 and 2007 when um, he denounced the the violence um, that that it, it would. I, mean, I don't know if it calculates to war crimes, but the absolute violence and and you know the, that was that some of his some of the members of the Mahdi army were perpetrating against Sunni civilians in Baghdad and elsewhere, which led eventually to this huge divide in, in <clears throat> displacement of Sunnis. 
So we saw entire neighborhoods in Baghdad that were empty of, of their Sunni population. And in return, Al-Qaeda um, took out, you know, did the same with, with, with Shia neighborhoods. And But it was members of the Mahdi army, and he denounced them. And that's what created the splinter and created other groups. So he knows that he can't control everyone through violence. And the scene now in 2022 is way more complicated um, because these these militias who were once under his control as, as members of the Mehdi army are now almost as powerful as he is with their own militias and their own political process. And they are politicians. This is the other difference. Mm-hmm. They have entered the political parliament, you know, as a, their political wing is 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 there and their military wing also um is active on the street and very much in control and you know we've we've written and spoken about this previously uh, and and he he kind of seems to be you know relying 100% on the aspect that that he's grassroots and he has that influence and yes that is true and the younger generation um they they they're more prone to be to be sort of more sadists they do follow muqtada um, they're not as, you know, captivated by the pre-2003 occupation and that story, but it's still something that he cannot win easily. And mm-hmm. he's he has to put more thought into it and probably needs an, another plan. Because again, this is this is as far as he can go when you think about it, Con- calling on his on his followers to, you know, storm the parliament and occupy different facilities and institutions and in an attempt to completely, you know, shut down the political process and call for re-elections, what what else can he do after that except yeah. by, except violence? And he does yeah. not want to go to violence, so there's little that he can do at the moment. So then, let's think about the the more religious aspect of this, because as always with what's happening in Iraq at the moment, there's there are all these different fragments of the story, and I wanted to talk particularly about what seems to have been the inciting incident for Sadr's own resignation, which was the resignation of one of his key allies just the day before. Yes. Yeah, so uh, so his, so the religious, as we said, Muqtada is not a religious reference, it's not a marja. Um, but the Sadrist movement in general, the at least a, a, a huge percentage of them, follow uh, Qadim al-Hairi, who is, a relig- uh, who is an ayatollah, he has that credential. He is based in Iran, um, as you know, as he explains it for quote unquote educational purposes. So to continue his you know religious education there, and he was he was uh, supposed to be sort of the uh, he was supposed to be sort of the inherent inherent. Uh, he would so he was supposed to inherit the the, the Sadrist movement following that his uncle had that Muslim Muqtada's uncle had, um, and. There has always been sort of a ten, ten, tension in their relationship. I, I can't trace it back to whether this was pre-2003 or not, um, when Muqtada was a lot younger. Mm. Uh, I mean, my personal assumption, and I'm not going to, I don't know the details of, of Najaf Karbala, how they function, and uh, and but it seems to be after the, the assassination of Al-Qui, that could have been probably another trigger, or it could have been could have sort of increased this distance between them. Uh, Al-Hari has accepted, initially accepted that Muqtada was influential in the streets and he had his, you know, he had his following and and because he was based in Iraq, um, that gave him also some legitimacy. But uh, they have never like officially clashed um, in in public. Uh, but what, but recently, uh, this was before Muqtada's um, re- uh, resignation, Al-Hari said that he no longer can, 
can, you know, uh, carry out his religious duties properly because of old age. Mm. This is the first time this happens in all of Shia religious history. No Ayatollah has retired because of old age. It's Stani, like the Pope. The Pope it, very rarely... Exactly. Yeah. Uh, mm. They're very similar. Sistani uh, is, is pushing 92, I believe, at this point. And, you know, he's still up and running. So he, And Al-Hadi seems to be in good health at 84. He's, he's still, you know, he still gives his sermons. He still speaks. He's, he still does his research. Uh, and then not only did he retire, he called on everyone who follows him. Um, and he used the word in Iraq and he continued using in his statement to save, to save our country, Iraq, and to make sure Iraq, you know, is, is in good hands. I call on all my followers to take Ayatollah Khamenei as their reference. Mm. Uh, it, Quite a it, seismic statement. It, it, it is. And if we look at things from a pure doctrinal, theocratical, you know, 100% religious, you know, aspect, that's not, you know, borders in this context, they, they don't exist. So if you follow a marja who is, is uh, you know, is, is from Iran, and it's, it's not, that itself is not, you know, not a sin. That's not wrong. And I think we have, you know, Similar examples also in, in Sunni Islam, where some people decide to follow, uh, you know, a religious sort of leadership in, in, in Cairo, others in Saudi Arabia. It's it's not really about the country. But when we look at the sensitivity of the context of Iraq and Iran, of Muqtada and Khamenei, and of um, of the of the recent escalation, you can't help but feel it was intended and uh, a very deliberate act uh, to sort of sort of. To tell Muqtada, hey, um, a message from 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 Tehran. We can yeah. we can control you when when you know whenever we want because we have this in hand. You know because a have... lot of the because a lot of the people who support Muqtada Sadr will also like um, Qadim al Hayri. I mean, if 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 the Ayatollah is telling them to follow this Ayatollah, another one, um, re- religiously they have that obligation. Uh, and there's a hierarchy there because, of course, um, exactly. is a grand ayatollah, mm-hmm. uh, which Muqtada Sadr is not. It, it, and uh, it's, it's. I mean, he can be, co- I mean, is there a possibility that he was coerced into this? Uh, that is. Of course, again, this is not, this is something that, you know, you just kind of conclude there's no evidence for it. Um, but the other, there was also a miscalculation um, on, on, on Iran's end by this, by this act. The vast majority of, of, you know, Muqtada's younger followers, they, they don't follow Al-Hairi. They don't really subscribe to this whole Marja religious uh, concept. It's a bit outdated for them. And this is another generational shift that we're seeing in, in Iraq in general. Uh, so he might lose a few of his followers, but it's not, uh, it's not going to have that massive impact where suddenly Muqtada's followers are now all following Khamenei. That did mm. not ha- that that did not happen. It's not going to happen either. Um, so it's more of a message, kind of telling Muqtada that he will never be a religious leader, and apparently that hurt him a little bit, and it kind of you know stoked this this resignation, uh, where he said that he wanted to focus more on 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 his on the religious aspect of of his you know um, of his role in the country and to earn more credentials and. And and whatnot. Perhaps this time he would be he want he would be aiming to become an ayatollah uh, in the future. But it, it what this did was that it it also kind of backfired in a way because it showed that 
there is absolutely 100% an Iran angle in this. And if we read a lot of the analysis and commentary the past few years, there's kind of been a dismissal of this role. There, there have been articles and essays at length written that Iraqi militias and the, you know, what is today the coordination framework, they're not controlled by Iran. They have their own interests. Iran merely observes, does not have that role that some people are, are suggesting it does. We see with this move with Al-Ha'iri, that's, that's not the case. Uh, it does call a lot of the shots and a lot of these militias and members of the coordination framework are actually under Iran's um, belt. And that was exactly, however, that's exactly the narrative that Muqtada has been playing with. You know, he's been saying, he's been telling people for the past few years that I'm the Iraqi nationalist. My rivals are 100% looking out for Iran's interest, not Iraq's. And this kind of proved it. So he might have, on one hand, uh, lost support for any violent escalation. He sees that that's not going to win over the, the streets and it's not going to get anywhere. And he sees that his rivals are not gonna not going to stop. They will fight back. But he's also kind of proved his point that he is perhaps the less, you know, pro-Iran, or at least right now he might even openly say that he's anti-Iran or his movement is in the in the future, uh, especially when compared to compared to his rivals. Uh, I wanted to ask you, because I know you follow what is happening inside Iraq, particularly among the, sort of the younger generation very closely. What is your take on how it is being I mean, how these these the escalation has been portrayed the last few days. So the first, uh, whenever there's like uh, whenever there's an escalation, uh, there's there's panic. So people rush to, to to markets, to stores, to get what they can. They don't really think about um, they don't really think about the why and how. I, I believe that they've they've lost hope in in everyone being you know a a good politician or anyone being a good person in this conflict, in this in these escalations. And again, I'm talking here about the general public. I'm not talking about followers from, from each side. Uh, so they just, they, they, they rush to the stores. They, they pile on what they can um, because they anticipate a curfew. And then when the curfew is lifted, uh, if you contact them two hours later, they're sitting in some cafe having a good time, like nothing happened. And I, I can imagine that this, um, this, bipolar lifestyle of, from panic to, hey, everything's fine. Let me go enjoy the rest of my day. It must be mentally exhausting. Yes. Uh, it, yeah. And and it's it's kind of become a matter of fact of life for 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 this generation, for this for the youth. But one thing that this time around in particular, I'm, you can clearly, clearly see is that there was no absolutely no desire to to escalate. Um, you know, or to join Muqtada or to support, to support the Sadrists, even if it meant um, a co complete collapse of the system. And when we go back to the October protests in 2019, that was the goal. The goal was to sort of, you know, overhaul the Iraqi political system and overthrow, you know, what, 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 is, what Iraq has at the moment with the parliamentary system that's not working. This was a very close shot that could have achieved that if there was more public support. But I believe after the loss of 700 youth in 2019 and Muqtada um, himself and the Sadrist playing a neutral and then and a role that had, you know, had its influence and in sort of curtailing um, 2019 protests, there were there was there's no desire, no appetite to engage in anything that could lead to violence. 
Um, that that energy that went into was, I mean, the 2019 protest went on for two years, mass, mass protests, youth-led protests. Um, the energy that went into those protests, where do you see that going now that they've kind of um, fizzled out? Uh, sadly, I, I don't really see it going anywhere. You know, they, there was hope when um, independent members, uh, independent politicians uh, won seats in the parliament. And the majority of the of these independent uh, parliamentarians, they were they were at least inspired or encouraged by the protests or a part of it at some point. Uh, but I felt that they they just no, it's actually they did they they kind of just got they got kind of you know swallowed by by the larger system and they were not really able to do anything. Um, and then some of them kind of have a tendency to be to kind of side with Muqtada on this. Um, because I think the only reason in this case is because he, he is, they see him as someone who was born and raised in Iraq and not an imported, not someone who came from London or came from Washington or elsewhere. Um, and to, you know, that upset many of the protesters, the 2019 protesters, because, um, Muqtada and his followers, they played a role in, in shutting down what could have been, you know, a, a much more influential, uh, political movement. So that kind of, you know, that that kind of fell apart. The energy is still there. The desire is still there. There's, there are no means, however, to actually carry it out. Um, no. We we might see there might be in, in the upcoming elections, um, they might have better organized and figured out a way to sort of um, enter the political system so they can, you know, they can acquire more seats and instead of 15, I believe this time, and have more of an influence on, on the outcome. Um, this time around, um, they just, they weren't really, they didn't really succeed in, in doing so. And there's no desire to go back and, and, you know, have another confrontation. And, you know, you see the difference between protests. And I know that we, because we throw around the word protest and very easily every time there's an escalation. Protesters storm the parliament. Protesters, you know, storm the palace and, and the green zone. But if we go back to 2019, the moment... The young protesters even approached the bridge that leads to the green zone. They were shot at in mass. Um, there were even snipers that were deployed in buildings to make sure that they don't manage to even come near the green zone. But when it's Muqtada Sadr's followers or it's the popular mobilization forces, their followers, when they want to protest, they're pretty much allowed, they're welcomed into the green zone. They can enter parliament, they can storm what they want, they can you know, ransack what they want and it's fine. There's there's very little confrontation, but when it's a protester who's a civilian who just wants a better life, no, that that protester dies. Is not allowed to protest. One thing that I have, I mean, watching the the protest in 2019 compared to now, to see the way that uh, sort of young Iraqis are talking about these issues on social media, one of the things that I found very upsetting about it has been the the deterioration in the the ideas of political change. Like the ideas of political change that were bandied around in the 2019 period were really quite significant. There was an idea of reshaping the entire polity of Iraq post-2003. And all of those ideas seem to have gone away now. And I think part of the reason for that is that, as you were saying, there seems to be such a, a feeling that it's impossible to break beyond these two militia groups, beyond the people with the guns who seem to be making all the laws. Is that overly pessimistic? No, 
I, I believe that's what that's what the young people are saying. Um, th this is the general feeling of the country. That's why uh, so many, so many want to leave Iraq. If there was any hope that uh, that they can change things or things can can improve to the better, that there would not be this this desire to leave the country. And for those who are are optimistic still, um, I think they saw so much bloodshed in 2019. It's not something that they want to risk at the end of the day. So they have opted to go the political road and enter parliament and enter, you know, the, the whole political process to sort of create a change from within. Um, it's just that these other groups, they're not, you know, they're not, they don't seem to be changing. They're very happy with the status quo. Um, and they're happy with how the way things are and have no desire to include others uh, in the political process, others that can have actual influence. Mm. And uh, it's it's hard to predict where it can go from here because again, it's only those living in the country and that are act that are a part of this um, that they're the only ones who have that say. Um, there were calls, for example, from many um, in, in many diaspora Iraqis uh, living abroad who I know personally their heart is in the right place. They don't want to see bloodshed or violence, but they're they want to see this system, you know, shifted and changed. So they were calling on others. You should go out to protest and, and you know, get rid of this system. And the Iraqis inside Iraq say, you know, it's really fun to preach when you're sitting in, you know, I don't know, when you're sitting in France. We yeah. would love to do, we would love to be in Paris, you know, and, and then tell others to do what they, and tell others what to do. That's that's a great lifestyle. We, we envy you for this. So there's no desire really to, to act. And it's living one day at a time, I guess. That's, yeah, that's I mean, the public. Yeah, I mean, you say it you, you, as you're reporting it. It sounds that as if they're making light of it, but it is actually very serious. I mean, to ask people to go onto the streets when, as you say, there are snipers waiting for them. Yep. A lot of these protesters, you know, they they never came home, or they came home in gaudy bags. In some cases, as you know, I mean, they were kidnapped. They still haven't been found. Yes. So it's an incredibly serious thing to yeah. ask people to protest. And then following on from that, if you're asking for a total dismantling of the system, I mean, there are Iraqis in the country who remember what happened when that system was dismantled in 2003. It didn't, yeah. the chaos of that thing didn't end in a matter of weeks or months. Yeah, yes, exactly. And and then you, and then they think that, okay, we're also going to see the same people who call for protests come in and probably they will be the politicians um, they yeah. will be the ones you know, coming in from abroad. And um, it's just it's a cycle that that's been very, very hard to watch, um, of course. And, you know, going back to, to Muqtada and going back to his to the rivals, the coordination framework. Again, it's it's hard to predict where it can go from here. It can it there can be a settlement. And all eyes are always on Sistani on Friday to see what his his you know, spokesperson will say in the Friday sermon. But as the past few years, I feel that his statements have sort of been vague in a way, and they don't really lead to anything. Um, you find that his name has even dropped a bit from the conversation um, mm -hmm. inside of Iraq. Um, outside of Iraq, no, we, we hear people saying, yes, we say, well, let's, let's wait for what Stani has to say. But you feel that inside of the country, it's not, that's, it's not as relevant. Mm -hmm. um, so it can lead, there can be escalation. Um, again, that is hard to predict. He's also very, he's a very emotional person too. Um, uh, so he can perhaps at one point call on his, his followers to 
take to the streets again and, and there can be the, the violent confrontation that everyone fears. There can be a settlement or the deadlock can continue. It's it's very hard to predict. But we can say that it's a it's a not a normal situation to say the least. And it also I it's it's not a situation that I believe has any base of comparison either. And this is this why this is this is why it's so hard for any good intentions coming from ally or friend states, whether it's the United States or, or the or you know the United Kingdom or any country that wants to intervene in a in a friendly friendly way to sort of just you know push forward the 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 political process or even the United Nations it's it's hard because where do you start when you have as you mentioned so many complexities and when you have a person who's not a politician not a not a religious authority but somewhat of a a cult figure that people admire and then you have other politicians, each who has their own militia. And then you have a religious authority who says he uh, resigned and is calling on Iraqis to follow an Iranian figure. I mean, if you, you come and explain this to someone from the United yeah. States or from the UK, yeah. it's there's no base even to compare to. Okay, what what is this similar? What the, what does this look like? Yeah. And it's it not just we're not. I don't just mean America, and I don't just mean the UK. Um, it, it's it it doesn't resemble anything of any modern state anywhere. Um, I, I'm not talking about, you know, Iraq is not a kingdom or a sheikhdom. Iraq is supposed to be a democracy. There's no modern state that has this level of government, that has these complexities that we're, we've sort of just been, become accustomed to deal with them as they are um, anywhere in the world. It's, mm. it's, very, it's very unique in a way. And I know we hear that, you know, maybe the political system of a modern state is a Western invention. Um, but even if we look to the Middle East and even if we look to East, again, it's there's nothing similar to this arrangement that Iraq has that has miraculously, you know, survived and the country has not collapsed. Um, again, I say miraculously because there's no other explanation for, for why it has not collapsed. Yeah. Uh, lastly, then, and, and more broadly, what do you think this says about uh, Iraq's post-invasion march to democracy. It, it does feel as if every time there is the possibility of some kind of normal political transition, they have an election, the election is accepted, you think, okay, finally, we're now going to have a normal political transition. It gets unraveled. The people, the public have accepted elect, you know, election results, however they are. It's the people in power that have not accepted the elections. You know, we for for so many so many I I see some comments in that that Muqtada has, uh, has refused the elections and that's why he withdrew his followers. That's true, but also let's remember when the election votes you know back in October it was the the popular mobilization forces who had at the time you know their um, their block Al Fatah block they had lost significant votes from the last elections. They were the ones who stormed the parliament and they called for a re-election. They called to recount votes. Um, it was, and it lasted for several weeks. So it's the political parties and those who are in in the process that are refusing to change. Uh, because why would they change when the status quo is perfect for them? And you know the difference about these elections in in, in October um, last of last year is that for the first time there was a chance of a majority government. Yes, it would have been granted. It would have been led by the Sadras, which itself is not a very optimistic look because they have, as I mentioned, have been among the most corrupt in the country. They have not really offered anything uh, for Iraqis. But we're looking at a majority government um, that would have created an alliance 
with the Sunnis and the and the Kurds this time around, um, unlike previous year where previous years where it was a quota system, um, but the but the majority being the Shiites uh, allying themselves with the Kurds and the Sunnis feeling left out. This time, Muqtada allied himself with the Sunnis, and it would have been sort of in that sense um, no quota system, and that would have been a unique step. That would have been a first step, probably for the first four years, no changes on the ground. But if that had become more former, more familiar, um, it would have broken the, it would have kind of taken apart this this sectarian quota that we've become so used to for nearly 20 years. But that, that you know, breaking the status quo is not something that Nurul Maliki wants. It's not something that the militias want. And uh, that's that explains a lot of the chaos that happens, just this there is a desire to change with the public. They want this. They've accepted democracy. You know, they accepted that elections is the real elections are the reality now, even if they don't create the change that they desire, but they do go and vote. Uh, but what how do you change a system that is democratic on the outside but is largely protected by armed groups and militias? Rashal Aqidi, thank you very much. Thank you, Faisal. You can find Rasha on Twitter at Rasha Laqidi, and you can also read more of her writing on our website, newlinesmag.com. This has been The Lead, the New Lines magazine podcast. This week's episode was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Faisal Yafai. For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favorite podcast app or visit our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us.